And now we move to part 18, the very final part of Twin Peaks The Return. The end. What is your name? Which opens with a black and white and red double R logo. And the previous one was the, was just black and white, a much an original one. And then the part sixteen was blue ish. Yes, so. they're far more. They seem far more ominous when they're a black and white mm. sort of thing. I'm not a person who ascribes meaning to what colour the Rancho Rosa. <laughs> Or, or, a little what, what thing is, or what I've letters seen, are filled I've in, or anything actually, like yeah. that. But I can definitely understand that. Yes, these last two episodes, with them being the particular color schemes that they were, are very ominous. What, what mood is he trying to set with this? So I don't Colour's really know. always important. But we do find out that the black, white, and red it becomes very um, thematic of the first scene we see, which is the red room and Doppelkoop sitting in a chair and being on fire. <laughs> Possibly the greatest opening yeah. of any yeah. television show ever. I'm it just going to put that it? out It does, there. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's really, really strong. Yeah, um, it sort of evokes Windermere sort of having his sort of spirit yes. blown out of the top of his head. Yeah, at good the call. End yes. of the second series, yeah. Yeah, no, mm. so outlandish that you cannot help but just like burst out laughing immediately because yeah. it's so satisfying. Yeah, there's electricity surging through the air again. Um, Cooper's hair kind of goes on fire and uh, we get a uh, Tulpa golden ball. Um, re- remains on the chair as, uh, and then Cooper walks in and he smiles at Mike. Where am I? I would have thought he would have been remem- remembered this, but then maybe we're getting looking at a different co- version of Cooper. Mm. Look, as anybody's guess, I mean, th- this red room has always been a very transient place, and it's a place mm. of transformation. It's and, a place and the, of waiting. Yeah, and mm. it, even though we played with the idea that it, you know it could be the black lodge or it could be the white lodge, depending on where on how you, you enter, it's always been very vague and, and ambiguous. Mm. Um, yeah. And then some of my favourite scenes from this new series, of course, have been inside this this very ambiguous transient space. Um, not to mention the final episode of the original series, mm. which is yes. just still one of the yeah, it's also it's one of the greatest things we've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I should point out that we're actually um, recording this on uh, Tuesday, the fifth of September, and that we're probably going to be changing opinions and views over the next coming days and weeks and months and probably <laughs> oh, years. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Oh, yes. So do not tie us down to interpretations no, necessarily. No, right now. I, th- I think most of our listeners would have realised that yeah, a lot of our opinions have mutated and and or become the complete opposite during yeah. the entire watching of well, the return. And we very much want to say to you, the listeners, you are allowed to change your opinion. Mm. You are allowed to have your feelings and your thoughts about this evolve. Yes, and as has so many of you have done. You can point out dif- point, different points of view on social media. Which there, is, there's no please. fixed reading of a show like Twin Peaks no. or any of Lynch's films. I mean, they're, they're crafted that way to be highly open to in- interpretation. I mean, like mm. I said, I have three different ways of reading it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literal, meta, and then this kind of academic symbolism. And I mean, and, and I think actually you can't even isolate those three readings. I think they all... No, intertwine. There aren't too many shows that are so actively engaging, I think, with its fan base Mm. and the ideas that people are going to be reading, reading into it. Mm. And I think that's part of the the beauty. So Mm. it's you know this is a safe space. (laughs) It's just funny. I realised that my my original thesis when I wrote on the original Mm. film and and series was in two thousand. So, (gasps) like, what I had fifteen years Mm. to develop my ideas for that. Tonight I've had less than a day to pull together my thoughts. So thank you, thank you for that disclaimer. Yes, we're we're being. 
in the habit of, of recording these episodes the day after the episode screen in Australia. And it's just, yeah, like we're still grappling with our thoughts and feelings all of the time. I've always been a very emotional viewer of Twin Peaks. Like I'm, I'm not always so interested in, you know, narrative readings or literal readings or uh, attempting to solve the series as a mystery. Mm. Like I'm far more interested in what the emotional journey that Lynch and Frost take me on and how that that relates to my own experiences. Lynch is a funny filmmaker because for somebody who claims to have no interest in coherent narrative or no interest in explaining stuff, his films and shows are full of clues and, 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 and symbolism and it invites all these readings. I mean, it's sort of... The, the hot takes on David Lynch texts, I think, are a dime a dozen. And, I mean, I, I've, I've done them as well and I've obsessed as well over how it could all uh, literally make sense. But ultimately the reason I've always been drawn to Lynch's work, and I, I suspect I speak for both of you and most people listening, is his films and Twin Peaks especially convey an emotional reality that kind of makes sense to me on a real, real gut level that I can't quite explain literally through words and that's why he's his work doesn't literally make sense because he's aiming for some kind of emotional truth mm. and and yeah that, that's always what i've got the most out of twin peaks in yeah. particular is, is the way it makes me feel and, mm. and how powerful and over overwhelming uh that feeling is and there's been points in this new series where i haven't had the emotional investment that i rem- remember so fondly from the original series but but the moments that did come were worth the wait. Yes, well... And I think this has worked with delay gratification. Mm. I mean, that moment in episode 16 where Coop finally wakes up, I think I stood up in my my, yeah. my decaying couch and did, and gave the TV screen a round of applause. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you were not alone in this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure I speak. Again, for many of yeah. us had this this experience. So it's a collective emotional experience mm. and it's, um, it's a difficult thing always to put into words. Yeah, and I think that, like, as I've been saying a lot through this podcast, I think Lynch is actually a more linear filmmaker than I think a lot of people are willing to give him credit for like his his work is kind of like clouded around with all this symbolism and all of these obfuscating things that are meant to make you go down so many different paths but when you isolate the emotional journey of his texts there's there's generally a through line through things yeah he's not nearly as as, as kind of wacky and ambiguous and random as he mm. claims he yes. is. And we so, so also must remember this is a, a series co-created by Mark Frost, mm. who is a, a, a genius of writing for television. Mm. And even though I think this transcends television in a way that zero other shows have, mm. it is still working within the television yeah. format. And yeah. Frost is so... Mm wonderful and meticulous at character building like I think all of the love that people have for so many characters in Twin Peaks can be laid directly at Mark Frost's doorstep do you think in the future we'll look back and we'll say well part 17 was Frost part 18 is Lynch I've seen those takes already and like to be honest I'm pretty much like look I'm I'm not going to quibble with that I think that's pretty (laughs) it seems pretty obvious it's like how we all watch part 8 and we were just like that was entirely a Lynch joint I think we can look at part 18 no one else was allowed in the room no one else was allowed in the room for that I think we can look at part 18 and assume uh, very similar yeah okay Hmm. interesting um, okay, so the camera pans across the floor and the curtains and then to the Jones household. Uh, Janie E answers the door. Dougie sees her and smiles and hugs Janie and Sonny and says, home. 
And there you go. There's that little bow. Yeah. So that's we, the only bow you're gonna get for the rest of the episode, happens, people. We have a ha- got a happy ending. <laughs> I at think this it's point. yeah. Well, he's mm. maybe yeah. Lynch is not a complete sadist. Yeah. yeah. He gives <laughs> us that moment. Actually, funnily enough, my, my uh, I should give credit to my wife who said maybe actually that was the real Cooper who escaped the fate that we see whatever this other Cooper goes into, and mm. that's him ducking out and having a chance at a normal life. Um, so I don't know what that little moment is. Again, actually reminded me of a similar technique they pulled off in Doctor Who where, you know, the David Tennant Doctor split into two and, yes. and the kind of slightly crappier version stayed in some alternative reality with <laughs> Rose. Doctor Who's hey, the other show I obsess over. Even a crappy over, David but, um, Tennant is better yeah. than none. <laughs> Doctor Who's the other show I obsess over but in a radically different way to, mm. to Twin Peaks. I mean, yeah. Mm. Um, so again, it, it, it's a weird little narrative trick that just worked at Twin in Twin Peaks. It's a bit like Norma and Ed getting back together. Yes. There is an element of that that was highly contrived, but I just thought they deserve this, and God, so do we. We have to have something. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for giving us at least this. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. We're all on board with that. Um, did, did, did you think that the way he said home was in a Cooperish way or a Dougieish way, or do you think we're not given enough information to really? Was that deliberately ambiguous? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. absolutely. <laughs> I think yeah. that moment was definitely left so that the audience could read whatever the heck they mm. wanted into that, and it was kind of like a little bit of a bone thrown to us, mm. I think, considering what is to come. Yeah, so we get another Cooper in the next scene. We're back. We get a replay of the scene of him leading Laura through the woods, and the Cooper left alone with the sound. But this time, we, if you listen to the carefully of the sound, I was kind of unpicking it a bit, and. Obviously, we'll re- defer to um, Jess Penny and Th- Thembi Sodell for on a future episode to actually really work out what's going on with the soundtrack because that's their area of genius. Mm. Um, I picked the sound of fire and horse hooves as long as Ooh. well as the Black Lodge scream of Laura from episode twenty nine. Wow! In that horses extra- would make sense. Extraction horses moment. would make a lot of sense. Yes, yeah, so it was a very very interesting um, s- s- moment there. Uh, let me go back to the waiting. Well, sorry, I'm just going I'm, I'm yes. to linger yes. on that now. Yeah, horses do. do make sense, of course, because the white horse mm-hmm. is the vision that Sarah Palmer sees when she's being drugged. Yeah. And, and the suggestion in Firewalk with me, she knows she's being drugged for this reason. Mm. So uh, there's my kind of little weird theory that maybe Sarah Palmer is part of this ultimate evil at the end that snatches Laura away. Well, what the other horses get mentioned in um, – they're, they're the, the last sound you hear in Part 8. Yep. yep. There's, they're in the white of the eye. There, there is also a visual white horse later, later in the episode. There is, yeah. There's the white horse that Ben Horn bought for Laura <gasps> that he yes. didn't buy for Audrey. Mm. Another secret, secret time. And I suppose in popular culture, you know, the horse is often a symbol of the extravagant gift you give to a little girl. Because in popular culture, Absolutely. that's what little girls always crave for, a horse. Mm. And, and and in the context of, I suppose, Twin Peaks, it is sort of possibly a gift that's part of grooming somebody. Mm. So there is something quite sinister about it, even, yeah. Um, then we're back in the waiting room, or the red room again, with Mike saying, is this the future or is it past? Good question, Mike. As we've yes. always been saying, Mike, <laughs> so, yeah. it is a pertinent question. It is always good to be reminded of this. And he says this to Cooper, who is now Cooper wearing his pin, his FBI pin. Mm-hmm. Um, then Mike vanishes, and then we the camera lingers on the two empty seats. Cooper stares at them, and then he reappears in the corner, and Cooper gets up and follows him. Um, then Mike leads him down the corridor, which we haven't seen since episode 29, this particular mm. corridor. And the last time we saw you know, him going down this corridor, it was wrong way. Absolutely. Yeah, and then there was this idea of the way that Cooper was leaving was, you know, he was being chased by the first the first version of bad. Cooper. Yeah, and he yeah. was having imperfect courage, and he was coming in. Mm. Yeah, and so it was. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, ways that you could understand as to why yeah. the uh, doppelganger emerged. Mike leads him down the corridor and to the arm tree, hmm. um, which reminds you, I am the arm, and I sound like this, and he makes the <laughs> sound. 
Very well done, Andy. Thank you. Well, I, 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 that was definitely the sound of eating gum and bozia. That definitely was. That. Yes, yeah, yeah marvellous, yeah. I love the arm tree. Oh, same. When we, mm. we were actually polled by the website 25 years later, it was like, vote for your favourite new character. I voted for Armtree. It was the only one. <laughs> oh, what? I know. Everyone was all like, you know, but Wally, Chad. I was like, come on, Armtree. Wally, Wally Arm was pretty Everyone's great. Everyone's going to lose a fight against the Armtree. <laughs> Michael Sarah, secret most valued player of New Twin Peaks. Ooh, bold call. It's a, ah, it was a hell of a scene, wasn't it? It was yeah. a heck of a scene. I attempted to rewatch the entire extant series before 1718 came out. I failed miserably. I only got to episode seven. Um, well, but it, it, rewatching it, it, Wally again was a thing. If, if James oh. is a sort of parody of the kind of Jason Priestley, mm. Luke Perry yeah. kind of 90s version of James Dean, then I think Wally is an even heightened parody of James. I mean, it's just mm. like this layer upon layer of taking the piss. Yeah, mm. In a loving way. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Sorry, that was we got sidetracked. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> this will happen on this show. If you Google um, new James Dean early nineties, you see a picture of Jason Presley and Bobby Briggs. Oh, really? There was an interview that well they, done, Dana. they did along with Luke Perry and a few other people from that era. That I I've got a soft spot for Luke Perry. Yeah. If they do a fourth Twin Peaks, that would oh, be some on. glorious stunt casting. Well, he's doing some nice it. work in Riverdale at the moment, which is which is alter- basically another alternate reality. Weird <laughs> Twin Peaks light. Yeah, yeah, mixed yeah. with Gossip Girl or something. Yeah. I avoid anything that's described as lynching unless it's by Lynch. Yeah, I've no. Been burned in the past. I yeah. feel like only Lynch things are allowed to be called Lynchian. Is everyone else on board with this? Yeah. Only Lynch can give birth to Lynchianness. The, the, the expression Lynchian has been horrifically misused in yes, marketing to, to promote anything that's vaguely weird, whatever that means. Wild palms. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I remember liking Wild Palms. That's a long time ago. You're the only one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I've never revisited. <laughs> uh, speaking of revisiting, we should return to... Yes, the, uh, yes we should. Sorry, sorry. Divergence. Um, wormholes. There are people out there grieving. Okay, we need to be here yeah, for Yeah, I them. know. We need sorry. to be respectful. I keep I'm forgetting sorry. that. I'm I think sorry. we're shielding ourselves from what's to we come. Are. Where we, we are. are delaying it. Yeah, forgive us our nostalgia. Yeah. Is it the story of the little girl who, li- who lived down the lane, says Armtree? Oh. Is it? Cooper stares at him, not really understanding... No, that's a very important and line. This, and here is our possibly our only reference to Audrey throughout the entire part 18. And I think it's very important for reasons that I will disclose later. Do, later? Okay. Yes. Yeah, it's a funny line because, of, of course, that references Audrey, but also, I mean, you know, the core of this show is what happened to Laura, so mm. it could also be about Laura. Or it could be about them both because the original series often would pair up characters through less obvious ways, and Audrey always felt like another version of, of Laura like if, if there was a not Donna but Audrey because Audrey all, also almost became a victim of incest and abuse to her father you know Audrey also did have this romantic attraction to Cooper which is sort of has been there with Laura as well it, it, and, I, and I think there's always been a sense that maybe Cooper projected onto Audrey mm. his ideal version of Laura even though Cooper in the original series was incredibly noble by saying Mm. Well, no, let's not mm. give him too much praise. He did the right thing by saying, "You're a schoolgirl. <laughs> yeah. I'm I should, man. I should yeah. not sleep yeah. with you. Yeah. What yeah. you need right now is a friend." Mm. Yes, yes, he, he did what a human being should do. Yeah, but but in TV terms, I suppose that was quite a big deal. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because suddenly with this this acknowledgement of of Audrey on the back of the horse reference that we've just had, and the fact that everyone's like, "What's what's happening? What's happening with her?" Mm. We were suddenly throwing this possible idea of the relationship between Audrey and Laura, which is one of envy, and it was a very confused envy because you know it was mixed mm. up with 
you know, like you were saying, potential incest. There was this, you know, coveting of, you know, almost this pedophilic thing, mm. potentially. And Audrey does get obsessed with Laura as well and tries to relive her life in the and, original yeah. series. In yeah. a way where, you know, it's very unusual considering that they weren't even really friends no. when Laura was alive. They were do only they even ever appear on camera together? They do not. They, no. As far as I remember. Even in the missing pieces? But but Laura provokes um, the best qualities of Audrey, the ones we must associate with her, which is the detective, the, the singular girl who's out there doing yep. her own thing and being strong mm. and using her many many talents you know for good end um and also you know to further her own character development of course mm. but yeah it was interesting that there was this hint of there of this relationship which may play you know which should play into part 18 you'd think and then it's just left there mm. so anyway we can come into come to order later i guess yes, yes. Uh, and then we come back out and leyland is in the waiting room and again <laughs> re- reminds you know cooper that he wants him to find laura and Laura looks across the room and then walks back down the corridor, moving his arms in a Nido-like movement, or like the way that we saw Mike moving as, mm. as if he were blind with his hand out in front of him. And this is another kind of like a replay of Cooper leaving the Red Room. But th- th- this is, suggests to me that at least this is a different way that he may have learnt in the last 25 years now is leaving by the right way, not the way in which he's you know, full of doubt and which he's being chased by his doppelganger. And then he emerges in Glastonbury Grove, but then we get this pan down of these very spindly trees, this extremely fake-looking environment. Mm. And Diane is there waiting for him by... The, is this the curtain call that he was alluding to earlier? Where is Cole, if this is the case? Is it you? Is it really you? Cooper says, yes, it is really me. Is that really you? Yes. And then they look at each other and then the curtains vanish and they're now back in what seems like reality. I mean, I think we're in Cooper's dream now. Cooper has realised that his obsession with Laura has come to nothing. He can't go back and, and save her. You know, she, no matter... Yeah, she, she's dead and no matter what he does in the investigation, even though he found the killer, there was another person he wasn't able to save. And so he's had the kind of fantasy sequence of saving her. That has failed. And and now he's going to some other kind of reality where he's he's escaping all this and he's finally getting together with the you know the woman he's possibly lusted after all this time, which is which is Diane. And you know, they're gonna go off and have one last crack at it. But um a bit like mm. the Naomi Watts character in Mulholland Drive, a bit like mm. the Balazar Getty character in Lost Highway. It's an imaginary ideal of self that he's going to start to break down. Mm. And I think a big part of Cooper's dream and kind of imaginary idea of, of himself is to have literally projected all the bad elements of him into another person because Cooper doesn't therefore have responsibility for these very negative impulses that have gone on to Doppelcoop. And what we see in the final episode is possibly for the first time in the entire history of Twin Peaks the actual human being of who Cooper is. Really? Because I don't think he quite behaves properly as no. traditional Coop. He's, no. he's, he's very He's not strange. bad Coop. He's not no. Dougie. He actually no. seems like... He's an amalgamation of the three. He's a flawed person trying to do the right thing, but in a ham-fisted, ugly way in right. certain Because I have things. a totally different reading. Yes! Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, bring it on. Okay. Bring it on. because I, I, I also I'm, have a different reading. Yeah, I am stumbling in the dark. But I... This is the first time we've seen the real Cooper is the theory I'm toying around with like a cat batting right. a little toy oh, mouse. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I think it has legs. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, legs. I feel like we're going to talk about all of our different theories eventually during during this discussion mm. and I think they're all going to be able to layer on top of each really? other and they will all be able to exist mm. concurrently. Okay. Anyway, back to the story. So Highway. Diane and Cooper are driving what looks like Nevada again mm. past electricity pylons. And they're both wearing black. And Diane is saying, are you sure you want to do this? And she looks very unsure about what they're about to do. You don't know what it's going to be like. 
we're at that point now I can feel it and it sounds and, Dopp- and Cooper's voice is not sounding like you know jolly Cooper's voice or good Cooper no no um, because we'd just been so recently reintroduced to him we know what his cadences yep. are like yep but no he's very focused look almost exactly 430 miles and they stop by the pylons it's exactly 430 miles and then Diane holds his arm just think about it Cooper and he leaves the car and he walks ahead of the car and then he bathes in the sound of electricity with his arms out and then he checks his watch and then Diane is looking very very nervous in the car and then he returns and he gets back in and he says this is the place alright kiss me and once we cross it could all be different and they passionately kiss and then say let's go they face ahead and they drive very Cooper drives very slowly forward and as we get the sound of electricity becoming much louder cut to a black road in the night time and then driving very quickly the lighting here is extremely different so they look quite a lot older in, in this particular shot and we see this kind of strange lighting in the car effect later in, in later scenes with, with driving and there's pitch black outside it's one of those beautiful lynch blackness blacknesses that we got with Doppelcoop and then the scene goes on and on and as they hold on it for a long time and then before fading to black and then arriving at a motel Cooper and Diane arrive outside Cooper gets out of the car in front of room seven and then walks past five three and one to go inside and then Diane watches from the car and sees another version of herself standing from behind a pillar in the forecourt uh, they kind of make eye contact. It's left ambiguous as Cooper returns and he stands outside room seven and then looks at Diane who gets out and then enters with Cooper. Yeah, wow, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's first of all, nobody shoots a car driving at night like David Lynch. No. I'll never get sick of those shots of the headlights on, on the road. We've um, been referring to them as Lost Highway shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was doing it before Lost Highway, but Lost Highway it was very front and centre, wasn't it? And nobody makes the banal look so mysterious and beautiful like Lynch. I mean, Mm. these kind of nothing spaces that... Australia has these as well, actually, these long highways where there's just these kind of nothing motels sitting there or or convenience stores. Or convenience stores. And they do have a haunting weirdness to them because it touches again on the uncanny, which is something Lynch loves to play with. It's very familiar, but it's just... It's in this slightly strange, isolated location. There's not... It's a little bit too empty... You know, when I in a different lifetime, I used to be a sales rep where I travelled around a lot in these regional centres, and there are some lonely nights in you know sitting in a car in a motel parking lot where I wouldn't have been surprised if I saw my doppelganger just step mm. out from behind the pillar, make eye contact with me, and let me know that that's possibly myself in one hour's time. <laughs> yeah. Or some yeah. of the doppelganger <clears throat> stuff, I, I, I often reminds me of the finale of Two Thousand and One: A Space Odyssey, where Dave Bowman is aged by he literally sees a future version of himself and then he is that self. And I sometimes wonder if there's a bit of that going on in Twin Peaks. There's been a lot of Kubrick illusions. Absolutely. I don't know whether that Diane was an evil doppelganger or it was just her seeing a vision of her future as the woman who's now going to leave. Yeah. It felt very – it didn't feel as ominous as so many other doppelganger previously Mm. have felt. It felt very much like – very close versions of the one person just regarding each other and maybe having some kind of secret communication or secret mm. thought or secret confirmation yeah. of something mm. in order to move. Well, I think seeing the doppelganger lends a certain inevitability to what's about to happen. Yeah. Like it feels like yeah. the future is already set, like yeah. no matter what's about to happen here. Mm. 
and it's coming faster than time can deal with. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's I'm, – I'm not entirely sure what happened with the electricity surging that we just saw. Like, what, But it seems like there was some sort of channeling of energy and this is being used to facilitate – Channeling of energy or maybe reality. moving into different spaces. Yeah, well, and the electricity is how, they, how all these be if – mm. if you're talking about the literal interpretation of this show, electricity has always been how they travel. Again, if you're sticking to the literal reading, which in this last episode I think is probably the least useful reading, we're in a whole new dimension now. Yeah. I yeah. think a whole yeah. new reality that we haven't seen before. Yeah. And it's about to get weirder. <laughs> so and creepier and sadder. Yeah. So mm. Diane is standing in the hotel room next to a very strange looking lamp mm. that may remind Probably. some pe- people of the lamp from the red room with or an eye. And she turns on the light and could, and Doppelgoop says turn off the light. It's very instructional. He only seems to speak in in orders, really. Mm, yeah, I'm not quite sure if it's quite accurate to call this one Doppelkoop. I think we sorry, have to just sorry. call him. Yes, are you right? Yeah, yeah because I've... he he is this amalgamation, I think, of all of the previous Coopers that we've mm. seen before. Yeah, like okay, that's your reading. Or I'm just getting a different new one. one. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all my mm. theory is this is possibly the, the finally the real the Cooper. real Cooper. Mm. <gasps> I haven't heard that one anywhere. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so what do we do now? You come over here to me. And then Diane crosses the room and they kiss. And then we get a really interesting music cue of My Prayer mm. from part eight, mixed in with some extremely ominous, battlementy, huge, over, you know, oversized chords. And then they start to have sex, and it's a really unusual sex scene because we don't ever see them in the same shot. We see different faces, we see bodies, we see hands on breasts, we see hands on faces. Mm. And I then, think because reactions are far more important than the act because it's actually being Well, performed. this immediately throws me to, like, every other time we've seen a sex scene in Lynch, it's always something, it's never about sex. No. It's always about identity switching <laughs> or it's about somebody, like, merging into another body or there's some sort of, yeah. someone's reality is about to get very yeah. strange. What, and also, it's surely this is a reference to Dougie and Naomi Watts' character having mm. sex. So that sex scene was very much played for laughs. Because it was sort of Dougie, who we could argue might be the ultimate idealised version of Cooper, you know, living... If he can't make it as the crack FBI agent, he's imagining him as the happy suburbanite. <laughs> and and that's just such a kind of gleefully funny wish-fulfilment mode. Again, you know, this guy who's got this gorgeous wife who is just insanely turned on by him. Yeah, <laughs> and he's a good-hearted insurance agent. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. yeah. Just, just lying there flapping his arms Vegas, around. In Vegas, in the city of sin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a total fan of oh. fairy tale, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I think this scene, sex scene in particular, you know, we're, we're very much on Diane's wavelength, I think, during this entire scene. It's very and hard to be on, it's, on Coopers. It's very hard to be on Coopers. And the bit that really got me, like, I, I got very emotional during this scene and kind of had to stop for a little bit was the bit where Diane put her hands over Cooper's face so that she couldn't see him while they completed the act and it was just such a it it was just such an act that someone who was processing something terrible that had happened to them to do in that, you know, whether it was you were having sex with someone who had previously violated you or who you felt had violated you, even if it's not the same person, if it's somebody else, you know, sex can become such a fraught and disturbing and awful act to go through if your your trust or your body has been violated previously. So if we do take into account the Tulpa Diane's 
confession as to what happened to her with Doppelcoopers being something that did happen to the real Diane as well. This is just a continuation of her story of trauma. And what this scene actually culminates in is her almost not exercising because as we see through the rest of this episode and what I will argue is Twin Peaks' entire almost thesis altogether in that you can never outrun trauma, you can never erase it, you can never pretend it didn't happen. You just have to work through it and it will always be with you but you will be given means to work through it. And that's what I kind of see this entire scene playing out specifically for Diane. This scene is not about Cooper at all. It's about Diane. Right, because there is a there's a statement earlier, like, do you remember everything? I remember everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I actually took this to be an allusion to Nido because this was in part three. She does the same thing where she identifies Cooper by touching mm. his face and moving it around like this, but almost kind of blinding him mm. in the same way. So I thought when when he's saying, "Do you remember everything?" It's including those memories of being trapped. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. It's also, mm. I mean, and we also end with that high angle shot of her looking up with a very anguished oh, the way her face yeah. shifts yeah. oh with that which, beautiful which only Dern can do for you oh yeah. Dern has got one of the greatest mouths of any mm. actor it's extraordinary what she can do with the shape of her mouth just the emotion it conveys but but that shot for me immediately reminded me of the shot very early in the series of Amanda Siegfried oh yes the yes in ecstasy you so know, mirrored. Just a moment of bliss. Mm. I'm on the road. I'm on the highway with with my boyfriend. Even though we know that's going to go horribly wrong. Yeah. And yeah, even yeah. at the time, we know <laughs> this guy is no good. It is a moment of pure ecstasy and bliss and happiness. Really, right? Because I got totally different <laughs> readings of this. But first of all, we got the um, the strange digital strobing haloing going on here mm-hmm. because, it, and this seemed to shift as well throughout the scene. This to me was not like there was no pleasure. I didn't even though her face was shifting. Mm. Oh no, no, I'm saying it's a contrast. Yeah. Oh so yeah, the, sorry. The, okay. Yeah, so the, the, the Diane shot is a radical contrast. Right. The Sorry, we saw earlier. Yeah, Diane's not happy. No, no, no. no. <laughs> no. This is a mo- this is yeah. a motion of erasure. I, think. Yeah. I feel like there's memories trying to be cancelled out or over overridden. Mm. Yes, or- which is a big theme in this episode. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So nice. it's just, just just something that she needs to do in order to get past this and go into whatever the rest of her life is. Yeah. It's like she's waking up now as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote at the end of this scene in my notes. Feels like we're wasting precious minutes here. <sighs> Because you I was monster. I know. Andy. Well, in retrospect, it seems like a monster, but I'm still so like, come on, come on! Like time is running out. We've got stories. We've got people hanging around in places, in, you know, in between states. And Lynch and Frost know that. Yeah. They're doing this to you deliberately. Yeah. Well, maybe Lynch is. I think Frost is like, okay, I'll take part <laughs> seventeen. You can have part eighteen. All right, Dave, I'll give people a happy ending. You, you can do Rock Scissors favor this time. Frost, Frost has totally pieced out from whatever is happening right now. Yeah. I'll go back to reading my books about but the that, that Upanishads. Delay gratification has been a big part of this series. I mean the reveal of Cooper waking up, the Cooper we know and love in episode 16, I don't think would have been as amazing if it happened earlier. Oh, God, The no. fact that it yes, w- yeah, yeah. happened in mm. 16 was like, oh, you brilliant assholes for making me wait for that. <laughs> mm. I, I, I've hated you for 16 and a half episodes, now I love you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was trying to document every expression that was happening on Diane's face throughout the last minute or so of this scene because it's moves and it's so clear. It's striving for something. It's accepting something. There's a desperation there, and then it's also kind of slightly blurred as well by the by the way that it's been shot because it's quite dark. And then she begins to cry, and then it becomes like this cry of like of grief, of like loss, of tr- overcoming stuff. It seems like she moves through like this spectrum of emotions, mm. and then the song that goes with it as well, like this the My Prayer, member of the band of the Platters named David Lynch. 
just by chance. But also, it's like Are you a for real. Yeah, serious. Oh wow. Whoa. Oh, there's, there's so many ridiculous parallels. That go no, on. I actually I love that song too. It's a stunning it's, song. It's yeah, it's the American a graffiti song. soundtrack. So, um, mm. but whenever you get a kind of '60s pop song with Lynch, it's usually like, uh, I think this is ironic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but all, yeah, it's such a strange one because it's religious. It's also yeah. like a cry to the spiritual realm from the real world. It's you know, it's about coveting somebody, but then at the same time, it's just you know, your prayers is going out there. It's just being lost. It's all the power, all you can do because you're powerless essentially. So it's yeah, it's a very interesting choice, and plus, of course, you know the part eight allusions, which which we would readily associate it. Um, and she also looks up at the ceiling as well, which is like another you know, throwback to the Palmer household. The fan motif, which is yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So Jesus yeah, I mean, I, can you look at ceiling fans now and not feel a little nope. creeped out? It's, no. it's incredible how and traffic lights and how they, yeah, but the fan in particular is just yeah. really penetrated. Yeah. I mean, it used to be. You know, it, was, it used to be a staple of film noir, I think. Yeah, but, but, absolutely. But, um, which, of course, Lynch adores as well. Mm. But, I mean, it's amazing how that's penetrated my psyche. Now it's become a vortex, people. yeah. 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 I mean, you just could, <laughs> they just show the fan in this series and you know. Yeah, or the sound or the, yeah, anything, yep. yeah. Um, and then we cut to the morning after. Cooper wakes and he says Diane's name several times. His hair looks great. I did make a note of that. Like yes. the, okay, so it's not entirely <laughs> this alien Lynch character. is not a complete animal. No, you know it's not. He's doing not going to mess with Cooper's hair. No. <laughs> um, he see, he reads the note behind the uh, that he finds addressed to Richard. Uh, when you read this, I'll be gone. Please don't find me. I don't recognise you anymore, Linda. There you go. Hmm. Mm. Is this Richard? I have seen several interpretations of just sort of like oh so Cooper has somehow inhabited someone else's body who was called Richard and. Diane has also taken the place of a person called Linda, etc., etc. I don't know. That's very. It's a bit too literal for me. I feel like that what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with a completely different realm and reality and yeah. levels of understanding that maybe we don't have the keys to. Okay, so are they occupying a reality in which there is a Diane and a Cooper, so there can't be another Diane and another Cooper? I think that's too literal. Mm, okay. yeah. They've moved into another mm. sphere of understanding in a similar way that the the you know the, the character the character in Lost Highway morphed into two different <laughs> selves, yes. or or the, the the characters in Mulholland Drive morphed into two different selves. You know, Mulholland Drive played by the same actor, Lost Highway with with different actors. I mean, I can give you my quick reading of my very very quick reading of Lost Hi- Highway, which Do might it. inform this. I went all Lacanian, so I went Lacanian psychoanalysis when I wrote about Lost Highway. And I uh, so Lacan reckons there are, and this is this is such a simplified version of something I wrote like 20 years ago. <laughs> so excuse me, real and serious scholars, if I butcher this, but there's kind of three realms of interpreting the world. One is called the symbolic, and that's the one that's recognisable to most of us. The symbolic is the world populated by things that we have names for. So we know this is a... That's a microphone because we have a word for microphone. We know this is a table. We know that's a bottle. That's the closest thing we have to a tangible reality because we have names for it. We understand it. It's not perfect. Then there's the imaginary. So this is building on, I suppose, Freud's idea of the ego, which is the projected self, what you really want to be. So in Lost Highway, the symbolic is sort of Bill Pullman. He's a saxophone player. He's, he's kind of rubbish in bed. He's got this incredible misogynist hate building towards his wife. And in the, in the imaginary, he's Balthazar Getty, a really great working class kid who gets a lot of ladies and he's having just a, a wild time being young. But then what starts to crash in on the imaginary is his third realm, which Lacan called the real. Now, you've got to be careful about not getting 
confused about what the real is. The real is stuff that exists way beyond our understanding of the symbolic. So it's stuff that exists that we don't have names for yet. And it can be, it could be what people have referred to as alien encounters or seeing angels or seeing ghosts or seeing demons. It's stuff that exists in the universe that we don't have the words for. And I think in the Lynch universe, the real is often the this force of misogynist violence and hatred that that is sometimes impossible to wrap your head around. It, it, it's the force within a man that would make him rape and kill his own daughter. We don't have words for a horror like that. And I think figures who embody the real in figures like Bob, figures like the Mystery Man in Lost Highway. Um, and, and maybe maybe the Unseen Judy as well. So I think what we're seeing in this final episode is whatever Cooper is, he's moving from different spheres. So right, maybe the okay. imaginary is collapsing mm. and he's moving back into the symbolic and, and, and we're going to get the real crashing in at the very end of the episode. Right, fantastic. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that reading. Yeah. It's awesome. not as clean as that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think some characters are dreaming while some are awake. Sometimes mm. characters are dreaming in real, yeah. as in all the symbolic settings. Yeah. It's very complex and I'm going to need to write another thesis one day to make sense of just this episode <laughs> yes. alone. Well, I look no, forward to reading it. Let's I, keep fumbling through, though, because yeah. I'm loving where you guys are coming from with this mm. as well. Yeah. Great. Cooper wakes up and leaves in a totally different motel. It seems like a different time. There's a lamppost that is very reminiscent of the shape of the arm tree. It's sunshine. He walks yeah. to a shiny new uh, FBI car. No, right. it was yeah. different. Um, yeah. It's a. Uh, he's gone from a. Uh, oh my god! What was the model of the car? It was a Galaxy 500, I think. For Galaxy 500, now he's in a 2014 model FBI car, which is totally different. And it seems like we're in modern day. Everything's being shot quite differently. It's all like wider shots. We can see brands and that sort of stuff. Well, we moved now to Odessa, Texas. Uh, I don't think a place that was chosen by um, randomly. Um, then he drives past a place called, that says is a diner called Judy's with a sign that says mm. "Eat at Judy's." Consumption. There you go, Judy. Yes. Um, so Cooper stops, of course, and get, walks in. Coffee, more coffee, and Cooper looks around, and then he looks kind of disoriented, and he's not acting like um, a Cooper that we've seen, or maybe he's, a, he's acting like a Cooper that is the, the real Cooper. Um, and he looks at the name tag on the woman. It's Christy. And then he asks if there's another waitress that, worked, that works there. And Cooper sips his coffee, although he takes a glass of coffee, his cup of coffee, although I didn't see any coffee in that cup. No, it was barely filled. Yeah, and he didn't respond to mm. drinking it. Very strange. Christy says that uh, there's another waitress that says she's not hasn't been here for three days now. And then he, she goes over to serve some cowboys, and then she gets uh, harassed, and Cooper intervenes as per good Cooper would probably do in this scenario. And he says, leave her alone. And then uh, she walks away. The cowboys come over. Fuck you doing? And then they, say, they pull out a gun. Cooper manages to pull out amazing Cooper slash Dougie for Cobra moves, <laughs> disarms them, kicks one in the ball, shoots another in the foot, and then pulls a gun on the third one and forces him to disarm himself and then sit down. While the other guys are wincing in pain, Cooper takes his gun, kind of actually holds it, uh, holds everybody up in a way. He just kind he of really waves, does, his, waves yeah. his pistol around. Yeah. Mm. If you're wondering, is this a different Cooper that we had seen and loved already? I think it's really much. It's very much. This is the moment that you really realise this is yet another version of Cooper we haven't mm. seen, and it does feel like a mix of all the best and worst impulses of the different versions. 
Um, and this is why I'm arguing this might be the real Cooper. Like previously, he could split his good and bad self into two in his imaginary mm-hmm. world. But in this world, he has the right honourable intentions. You know, he's revolted at these men harassing the waitress, but he takes way too much pleasure out of uh, the violence he then inflicts on them. And and he doesn't reassure the other people in the diner. He's not kind to the waitress. He, he's quite aggressive and threatening himself. Yes, yeah. And then he deep fries the guns. Yep. Um, then also while well, warning people that they might go off and so they should all take, take cover or get away. And he uh, makes Christy write down the address of the other waitress. His voice seems to be moving quite strangely in this as well. Mm. Again, it's almost like a middle ground between double coop and regular coop. And the cowboys get up after he leaves the diner. What the fuck just happened? Which is, you know, a fair question. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Good, good call. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like Christie's given the correct address. He goes to 1516 um, and he sees a very ominous electricity pole out the front with the number six on it. Um, and then we get that nice little electricity sound that was very reminiscent of uh, the fat trout. And he approaches the door, knocks, and answering it is somebody who looks just like Laura, mm-hmm. but who has a very, very telling name, Carrie Page. Yes, and a very telling Texan accent. Mm. Did anyone else think of the diary in the missing page? Oh, ah, no, right, yeah, she's no. carrying the page, the missing because car- there, oh. there was always one missing page. This is like the fucking pun of calling Dougie Dougie because Douglas Furs. It's exactly like that. Oh. Yeah, yeah, but I missed it. Far out. <laughs> God damn, nice work. <laughs> yeah. Very good investigativeness. Um, yeah. Carrie Page, that's right. So the name Laura Palmer means nothing to you? Look, I don't know what you want, but I'm not her. And then he says your father's name was Leyland, your mother's name was Sarah, and she looks kind of disarmed. Mm. She does repeat Sarah, I noticed. Mm. Yes, that's yeah. true, yeah. With a question mark. Well, it's like this could be, again, the real version of whoever Laura Palmer really is, but but the character is there is something still pulling her back into the imaginary dream world where she's Laura, or there's something pulling the character into our fandom Mm. and our knowledge of the show where, I mean, you know, Cheryl and... Cheryl Lee. Sorry, Cheryl Lee has never really escaped in her career being Laura Palmer. So, again, there's there's this kind of meta idea that even though this this person might be now the real person because Cooper's woken up, there is something tugging back at her. Which is ridiculous because she's one of the greatest actresses of the last few decades. Oh yes, yeah, but I mean, yeah, sorry, that's so true. Chest that, yeah, chest no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. She's no. a beautiful actress, isn't Absolutely. she? Absolutely. Um, it's staggering she, that Winter's her bone was the last time I think I yes. remember seeing her. Yeah. And she's yeah. great in that. Yeah. 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 Yes. Right, I've got another thing about this Ooh. scene, but let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. What's going on? It's difficult to explain. Oh, <laughs> just no shit. Quite accurately. <laughs> as strange as it sounds, I think you're a girl named Laura Palmer, and I want to take you home to your mother and father. It's very important. And then she kind of looks taken aback. Um, listen, normally somebody like you comes around and I tell them to fuck off and this door be slammed in their face right now. I've got to get out of Dodge anyway, so writing with the FBI might save my ass. Twin Peaks, Washington? Yes. DC? No, Washington State. It's a long way. It's a way away. Let me get my things. It's also very, very reminiscent of a scene from Vertigo in which Scotty is trying to convince Judy that she looks like a dead woman <laughs> and is having a really hard Hello. time trying to convince her. No, yeah, it's not. I mean, look, if you're a Lynch fan, Vertigo is an essential text. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's yet another. Looms large. He's he's a whole career. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Uh, So Cooper walks into the room. A man is sitting on the couch, shot in the head with a fly crawling across his forehead. Um, We don't really. We spend almost as much time on this the thing that is opposite, which is a white horse um, sitting on a shelf, Mm. backed up by a blue plate. Blue plate, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Cooper looks around the room. He sees a machine gun on the floor. 
this is a really really bizarre s- uh, scene, but we are just given cursory cursory chance to look at it, and there's no sense of investigating it at all. Um, Washington, is that like up north? Well, I need a coat. Take one if you've got one. I don't have any food here. I'll get us some food along the way. All right, let's go. So, like the coat. Mm. 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 Who was the last person who just didn't want to leave without a coat? Yes. I also like the fact that the phone just started incessantly ringing. Yes. And she was clearly, you know, she gives one glance towards it, but clearly was not intending no. on answering it because her ride out away from all of this had yes. just arrived. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I think the phone and the coat are very interesting mm. objects. It- Again, Cooper's kind of insistence on taking her away back to Twin Peaks seems as well more part of his own wish fulfilment. I need to rescue mm. her again. And again, it also feels like on the meta level, he's functioning like us, the audience member, saying, no, you're not meant to be here with this person. You've got to come back to this town and be the beautiful dead girl. Mm. So it's sort of, you know, again, it's Lynch wrestling with what I think the fans want or think mm. they want. Um and ignoring all these other mysteries that are just lying around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fan service is the worst. I mean, just bravo to the show, never indulging in what the fans want. Mm. Yeah. Like, there's nothing worse than what the fans want. Because um, it's always rubbish. It's, it's, it's so much better when a creator can do what yeah. Lynch has done, which is the complete unexpected. Um, I mean, look, the other curious, the, the, the other reading of this scene, I'm going to steal again from my wife. <laughs> Thanks, she, Sarah. Sort of, yeah, I mean, she's been highly invested in this in this show as well. Um, she said, you know, maybe this works along this idea that Lynch did manage, uh, sorry, Cooper, uh, same thing, Cooper did manage <laughs> to take <laughs> Laura out of the timeline where she gets murdered and saves her, and maybe this is now him catching up with who Laura Palmer grew up to be. And it's utterly disappointing. She, this is the scene that takes away the martyred sainthood iconography of Laura Palmer. She grew up to be a waitress who ended up in some very messy domestic situation who resorted to violent crime to sort her life out. Mm. It's the complete opposite of what you'd imagine yeah. Laura Palmer homecoming queen saint would achieve but also isn't it just the kind of future that anyone who had experienced such horrendous abuse at the hands of patriarchy could have achieved yeah totally absolutely so Mm. whether this is real coop or dream coop or somewhere in between this must be crushing for him to see her like this as it is for us the audience we want our laura palmer to be the homecoming queen or the beautiful dead girl and to see her mm. so plain and slightly trashy is is Lynch being hyper aware of what the fans think they want. Yes, but Cooper expresses no emotion about any of this at all. He just no. he's on a mission. He's got something to do. Yeah. Mm. Um, are you really an FBI agent? She asks when they get into the car. Cooper shows her his badge, but he shows it like a way in a way that we can't see. It's framed as if it's, he could be pulling out a toy badge. For, mm. yeah, but she's satisfied. At least we're getting out of the fucking town of Odessa. And then we get a lot of still, like, long shots merged to nighttime, more shots of highway at nighttime. Her hair seems to change colour as well, just because of the lighting. It changes her hair. Her hairstyle actually yes. changes, you know. Yeah. And I just want to make a quick comment. Odessa, Odyssey. Yeah. Just quietly. Mm. Yeah, Odessa also. It's very, it's very obvious, but I think very pointed. And this yeah. has been an epic journey. I mean, mm. this is a narrative that's spanned over 25 yeah. years. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. highly suitable. Mm. Yeah. Um, a lot of people online have pointed out Odessa was also a prominent place used in No, uh, no Country for Old Men. True. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of got a frontier feel to it, doesn't it? Mm. So we, we're on the fringe of civilization here. Yeah. Mm. There's been a lot of weird 
throwbacks and possibly homages to the Coen brothers during the yeah, entirety of the a lot of, of people Return, pointing that out last you know whether, whether deliberately or not yeah mm. i'm assuming you've spoken about the whole yes. tarantino characters too <gasps> yes. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> for sure um we get long shots of highway at night time and then we get a pair of very still car headlights behind them for yeah. an extended period mm. which throws us straight into noir territory and yeah. it doesn't seem no matter whatever camera angle they use the lights mm. are just Sitting there. Yeah, and I find it very telling that Carrie's the one who points them out and not Cooper. Well, mm. yeah, I mean, Cooper seems to see them but has no reaction to them. Mm. But then Whereas Carrie kind of rightly goes, oh, they've been following us for a while. Are they actually following us? Yeah, she crouches down yeah. in her chair. Mm. Because maybe this man isn't the great FBI agent we thought he was. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then she lets um, a few little uh, insights into her life out during this pretty non-existent conversation, but she feels like she wants to talk. Is somebody following us? And he doesn't really answer. And then the car overtakes them. But there's enough ominousness there to remind you of Jewel or to remind you, to make you think, is Judy somehow following them? Is there some, someone, there's plenty of people who could be on their trail. And all, correct me if I'm wrong, this is when I was starting to get very hazy. <laughs> we just saw the car headlights, didn't we? Yeah. That reminded me of the scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind where Richard <gasps> Dreyfus is in his truck and the headlights appear behind him and honk and he waves them through and the car drives past and he yells out, Turkey! And then another pair of lights appear behind him and then that rises up into the sky because <gasps> it's an alien ship. Yes. Right. And the, the Twin Peaks mythology has played with this idea that, it, you know... It's lit- aliens! Literally aliens yeah. are involved <laughs> or, or that's how some people have interpreted their encounter mm. with the... Well, quote unquote real. A lot of us have, were waiting for aliens to take a bigger role mm. after reading the secret history of Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, it's really blatant in the secret history of it's Twin all Peaks. over it, yeah. That's, that, that there's something that people have interpreted as alien encounters. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Odessa, she says, I tried to keep a clean house, keep everything organised. Oh, yeah. A dead body, no food. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's a long way. Those days I was too young to know any better. And I wrote, this scene is taking too long. Andrew Well come on For the love of God There's, I don't know I'm not a massive fan Of fan service as well But also But there was so much Great emotionality Going on oh, here Emotionality oh, Come on Are we not going to see Red No Are we not going to see We're, we're not going to see anybody yeah. We're not going to see anybody But th- th- there's no doubt now That Lynch has got a game plan here And oh, he's, he's so dragging does. it out he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's building the tension We're in the, the tube yeah. And you can't get out yeah. now Good and Lord this, It did feel like a dream Because the mm. pace of this Was just so strange and, and it felt like a dream Unlike I've ever had With a Lynch film yeah. or, or Twin Peaks I mean he's a master at creating dreamlike imagery and I mean I still think a Razorhead is still pro- possibly his real triumph for me along with some of the episodes he directed of Twin Peaks but just the way that embodies what it feels like to be in a dream and and I think this final episode comes almost matches that yeah 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 okay yeah the pacing is kind of mm. similar towards the end in the last latter third I think of, of a Razorhead mm. And then they pull over at a gas station because we've got all the time in the world. <laughs> um, they pull over at a Valero, which I understand is a quite a prominent brand in that part of um, the country. It's very bright whites and blues. Um, it's very vibrant. Somebody pointed out that the price of gas is very of the last few years. Mm-hmm. Laura and Cooper walk back to the car, black car. Three cars pass and they go back on the road. It's very slow paced. Um, Carrie's hair, I, I didn't write note, has gotten blonder. The style changed slightly, but then sometimes it would move, the lighting would change in the car and it would be like, oh, no, the red's come back. But I think you're right, yeah, it did change. And the outside gets darker. They cross a bridge that looks kind of familiar and then they pass the double R, but there's no double R to go sign. Mm. Yeah. And then they go to the Palmer house. 
the car pulls up, he asks Carrie if she recognises anything and she looks out the window and says no. Do you recognise that house? She looks very carefully, no. Cooper gets out and then Carrie follows. He says, come on, and they walk slowly towards it. He holds out his hand and she takes it and he leads her towards the house, leading again. Yeah. Much like the early, earlier scene. Mm. Three visible lamps in the front window. So I'm always looking out for lamps because lamps are extreme. Mm. I want to rewatch the entire thing when it comes out and again and on the It was all just, very, the, the house was very highly lit. It seemed like there was very a light clean. on in every room. Yeah, the lawn was, right. was looked yeah, after. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like the lawn we saw when Sarah was, last time we saw the front of the house. Mm. A woman answers. Um, who is Mary Reba? Who is the actual owner of the real Palmer house? Yes. Get out of here, really? Yes. <laughs> yeah, her and her husband have been living there for a few years. They didn't realise it was the Palmer house when they bought it, but they do invite people who go to the Twin Peaks Festival in to watch episodes. Oh, that just takes the whole meta reading yes. to a new level, doesn't it? It certainly oh, does. Oh, wow. Love it. Love it. Yes, she says, I'm FBI. Is Sarah Palmer here? Who? No, there's no one here by that name. Do you know Sarah Palmer? No. Do you own this house or rent this house? Yes, we own this house. Do you know who we bought this from? We bought it from the Chalfonts. Hmm. What's your name? Alice Tremond. And then she keeps checking with the character off, off screen. Okay, sorry to bother you so late at night. The scene kind of plays out quite slowly. They walk back down the stairs and the camera kind of floats behind them in this really beautiful way that is reminiscent of the way the camera moves in Mulholland Drive a lot, I thought. It was more like, it's like the dream eye or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. They both turn back and stare and then Cooper bends forward with his right hand in front of him in this sort of strange Dougie slash Mike slash Nido kind of move. And then he says the final line of the whole return, what year is this? And Carrie's eyes widen and she looks back up at the house and we hear the sound of Sarah calling Laura from the pilot, which was also used in the dream um, in episode two. And Carrie looks up and screams and the house goes dark as if all the electricity has been cut off. The reverb trail of her scream fades off to a black screen and then we get a warm battle of cord and a close-up of Laura whispering to Cooper. And his face is frozen, but then we also get a very slow pan of him, him having four very or five very distinct emotion reactions on his face, as he kind of shifts from understanding and acceptance, and then we fade to black, and then the Lynch Frost logo plays out in silence with no electricity sounds. The end. It's beautiful. <gasps> I, I. Yeah, it, it it it's a beautiful, beautiful but horrific ending because you know, Laura Palmer doesn't get saved. That the horror. And the trauma is always there. The trauma we can't is break. always there. We're not going to escape from it. We're not going to get the happy neat in a bow uh, resolution. Mm. You know, wh- whether this version of her is a dream or whether it's the real version, wh- whatever the show has meant, whatever the show functioned, it just came crashing in at that last moment. That kind of, that, that you know, just when the darkness kicks in over the house and she screams. I mean, I have had nightmares like that where mm. you would be in a familiar surrounding and it just goes dark and I've just had this sense of of some kind of horror or terror out there. I mean, this, was, this captured that feeling for me within this world that has meant so much to me for, you know, 25 plus, plus years. It, it chilled me. It left me chilled, left me incredibly moved, and I'm still not exactly too sure. Mm-hmm. This second half of the podcast, I certainly feel like I've gone above and beyond the rambling. No, <laughs> the, 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 this is, I feel like that, rambling, that's where everyone I'm still trying is. to make sense of it all, but um, yeah. it feels awful and it feels right. Yeah. It feels awful, it feels right. I also, though, had an extreme feeling of satisfaction because I feel like this entire, you know, it was, it was told from us from the beginning 
you know, from the beginning of the return, there was this very particular thing that the giant said, which was, it cannot all be spoken at once. And I feel like if you look at Twin Peaks where the entire point of Twin Peaks is Laura and the entire story of Laura is of someone who experienced the worst that other human beings can visit upon other human beings and she experienced this trauma and she went through this horrific event and she ended up becoming this symbol of some of so many different things that she that wasn't really true to who she was as a person she was this symbol she was this dead girl she was this idealized idea that so many people had so many people had bizarre ideas about Laura and the the wonderful thing that um, Fire Walk With Me did was that it was everything from her perspective so you could see her journey you could understand where she was coming from and the fact that the return focuses so hard on harking back to Fire Walk With Me and is constantly just always throwing in those references and it's almost like it's this beacon going hey you have to stop paying attention to all of the other stuff that's going on. This is Laura's story. Everything comes back to Laura. And this entire final episode, the fact that it, yeah, it, it all comes back to the point that, yes, as we've discussed, you can't pretend trauma didn't happen. You can't save someone from trauma after the fact. Once you've experienced something completely awful that has completely completely affected every aspect of yourself you can find ways to move through it you can find ways in order to heal yourself to a certain extent but that trauma will always be there with you I feel like that this ending is so I know it's so emotional it has that emotional through line that that has been here in in Twin Peaks from the very beginning and the reading that I've kind of ended up having through particularly these last two episodes is you can experience trauma you can build up a whole dream world which is you attempting to pretend that your trauma didn't exist or you're trying to work through it in some way but in the end that dream world will shatter and you must wake up because the only way in which you can truly process trauma and face what happened to you is to wake up and look it in the eye and I think that's why that very final scene you can read it as everything that has happened is not Cooper's dream it's Laura's dream it's always been Laura's dream. Cooper was, you know, that, that famous quote where he's like, Laura told me in her dream, her dream, everything has been her dream and it's her dealing with what happened to her. And if you take this reading, you can also look back at the Audrey storyline that happened throughout the return and her storyline was so boggling and so people were just like, what is happening? Is she existing in the world? Is she in the same plane as everybody else? And I think from what we saw, particularly in the last episode that she was in, that last scene that she was in in the roadhouse where it was clearly very firmly established that, no, she wasn't in the same space as everyone else. And you have that final 
moment where all of a sudden she switches from the roadhouse to being in this extraordinarily bright space where she is literally looking at an image of herself and going, what? What? It's waking up. It's waking up from all of the horrendous things that have happened to you and looking directly at yourself and reckoning with it because that's the only way that someone can process trauma. No one else can do it for you. The FBI agent cannot come in and fix your entire life for you and save you from what happened to you. And that's, that, that is the tragedy and also almost the triumph of Twin Peaks in that you, you cannot stop the trauma that has happened to you from happening, but you can learn to process it and you can learn to deal with it. And it's horrific. It's horrific having to look at these things head on and acknowledge them from what, for what they are. But I feel like Lynch in particular is such an artist that makes you want to face those really fucking hard things that we try to disguise through fiction. We try to disguise through fantasy, through dreaming, but if you're ever going to process them, you have to look them dead in the eye and recognise them for exactly what they are. It, um, I sort of almost completely agree with everything you said. I mean, the only thing I, I, I would throw in there and say is possibly worth exploring is the idea that maybe actually... I think Firewalk With Me is such a mm. beautiful... It is Laura's story. It honestly is, But yeah. I, I, I have heard some good arguments that these, these last two episodes mm. could now be the firewalk with me for Cooper. I love this. Yeah. Now, yeah. And I'm, 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 I'm I feel go- like so many of these readings can kind of like sit well, I think they do. on I mean, top of themselves. And remember, Cooper and Laura yeah. have always dreamed each other. They so have. these characters belong in mm. each other's dreams. And, and, uh, and a lot of what I'm going to say now, I'm probably mm. misrepresenting an argument that I briefly heard from Alexandra Helen Nicholas, my co-panellist and broadcaster on Plato's Cave. Hats off to Helen. Mm. Yeah, hats off to Hello. She, I hope I'm getting this right. Sorry, Alex, mm. if I'm butchering this, because I actually spoke to her before I'd even seen the episode. But she, she said, yeah, it's sort of firewalking me from Cooper's point of view. Mm. And, 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 and that kind of got me in the idea that this 25 years later, Laura is dead. She's gone. Yeah. That, that, that pain for her at least is finished. But I think the character of Cooper, it hasn't. He's become the obsessive cop who could never let go. And that's why there's kind of this weird dream version of good self, bad self, fumbling self, trying to get ready to take action. And I think a lot of this reflects what the fan base wanted. You know, we, we, we want to bring back the Cooper, the, the Cooper we loved. But it's 25 years after he kind of ultimately failed this the, the, the long game. Mm. And, and, and this finale is sort of Cooper's attempting to sustain a dream where he fixes the past and um, you know, and that dream just is collapsing throughout the last two episodes, mm. and it, it, the, the final moment is the obliteration of that. Mm. You you cannot bring back the past. You can't. And and it's saying to the fans. I mean, I, I, I even wonder if that line, "What year is this?" is saying yeah. to the fans, "You're not in 1990 anymore or 91." You know, mm. that's mm. finished. We're in yeah. a whole new thing now, and mm. Lynch is working with a new set of tools and ideas. That is existing remarkably with the existing mythology, but mm. but that Twin Peaks we loved from all that time, it, it is over. It's finished. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I love that point of the fire walk with me um, idea mm. it being Cooper's story because my idea of Cooper was that he's basically a, not the, a combination of all three. He's like a diminished version of the one that we think. So a lot of what okay. you're saying about catering for, for the fans is partly basically just his rational side. So there's no magic. There's no appreciation of coffee. There's no connection with the lodge. He's basically abandoned. So all he's got is his rational thing, and he's just got the only thing he's the only reason he exists is to save Laura. Every 
everything else is gone. Like it doesn't matter. Even the love of his life has left him. It doesn't matter. He's got to go to Odessa, Texas and make this thing happen. Um, and it's also there's another really interesting um, way of looking at this very final scene, the what year is this thing? And it arrives at the same destination that you get to, Haley, but through a totally different means and through oh, the oh, thing oh. that you do not care about at all, numbers. No, because I'm by numbers yet again. They play a big part, yeah. Yeah, so as well as the sounds, we were told at the very, very beginning to pay attention to the numbers. It was one of the very first instructions we got. And the final line of the whole return is Cooper asking for a number. So if we unpack this scene with the help of Twitter user Fate Colossal, we can get toward a theory fish, even though it's not really a theory fish, it's basically Fate Colossal's a ridiculous deduction. So this was shot in the actual house. The owner was played the owner. Mm. And they filmed the final shot on the exact day it was meant to take place, 10-10-2015. Really? And we know this because we can deduce from Major Briggs' slip of paper that it had the 1st of October, 2nd of October on there. Cooper drove to Odessa, Texas, back to Twin Peaks, which means it would have taken around a week to drive across the country. There were 10 people in Cooper's hospital room, 20 people in the sheriff's station for these particular key moments. And Dale tells Gordon 10 is the number of completion and and he's kind of broken the fourth wall. So basically Dale and Laura, 10, 10, 20... So it's basically they've essentially woken from this dream. They've reached completion in a way. And so there's a lot of power in using this fourth wall against reality. And this will tie into the theory fish or um, that I'll, I'll, we'll get to in a moment. But first of all, I just want to get to the end of this because this is kind of mad. So the one and the five are the remaining numbers. So the number one is refers to the dark side and also the right-hand side, which is ways which is, we can take from various other ways. We've seen the one used. And five represents the hand, five fingers. And we've seen the insignificance of the hand earlier in, in the return. Um, and so uh, we've got the one and the five can symbolise the right arm. So you've got the, you know, the right-hand side from the one, the hand, the arm. So that refers to Mike's arm. Also Laura's right arm, and or it's the way that Mike used his right arm to represent his trauma. That's what he cut off to be able to get rid of Bob. And so, or to create the the one, the small dancing man, or the, the tree, the arm tree. And so it's basically what, this 15 can represent Laura's trauma. So you can see about what um, Carrie says about keeping a tidy house and occasionally I was too young to know any better. So there's still this allusion to her youth that she hasn't forgotten. And so Cooper does remember the numbers 430 and 253. But 215, 2015, symbolises that Laura isn't ready to confront the truth and when she does in that final shot accept her trauma, she screams. And this is like the, what he's saying, 1010, 10, 2015, is basically her, like a, a, basically a numerical trigger for her to accept her trauma. That's <coughs> oh, amazing. And that Two Peaks is- Return is about living with trauma. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And suffering and grief. Mm. Um, and so thank you, Fake Colossal. <laughs> yeah. And look, just, just again, I want to pick up on stuff you've both talked mm. about. We've all talked about about the, the doubling of the self. Yes. And I'm going to, I will indulgently refer to my Please. very old and probably outdated thesis. But I, look, <laughs> I, I relied on a couple of sources. One was mm. by a group of people who in 94 wrote a paper called Family Violence, Everybody's Business, Somebody's Life, and also a book by someone called Alan Kemp in 1998. Mm. Abuse in the Family was the title of that. So acknowledging now that these texts are now possibly out of date and some of the thinking has changed, but they talked about what what happens to the victims of child abuse and um, especially uh, sexual abuse. And one of the key terms is this idea of dissociative disorders. And so I, I paraphrase some of Peter uh, some Kemp's work by writing, some of these disorders include disassociative identity disorder, which is what we used to call multiple personality disorder, where the subject develops a number of distinctively autonomous or semi-autonomous personalities to overcome the overpowering stress and anxiety of being sexually abused. Other disorders include disassociative amnesia, where the subject loses their memory of the traumatic event, and depersonalization, a disorder where the subject feels a chronic sense of being separated from their mind or body. I mean, I just think Lynch nailed 
that experience for Laura, especially in Firewalk with me. And there's anecdotal stories I've heard of, of abuse survivors contacting him saying, you captured my experience. Mm. That was horrific, but that's what it was like. And mm. I think it's important that as audiences we, we experience that irrational horror to try to understand what some people have, have been through. Exactly. Like we're, we've already experienced just like going through this series and talking to other people about their experiences with the series. Twin Peaks is extraordinarily cathartic for a lot of people who have suffered similar traumas Mm. it really is a site where you can just work out a lot of those issues and see those issues actually acknowledged in a way that has a lot of emotional intelligence and doesn't just like dumb it down like so many there's so many tv shows set around procedurals and especially around dead women and various things that have happened to cause those women to be dead and i feel was a whole uh, law and order has a whole series about sexual violence sexual violence exactly and some of the ways those things are dealt with are just very you know it's very tv it's very ham-fisted and there may be good intentions behind it but at the end of the day it's about sensationalism and i think a lot of what twin peaks does right is that it narrows in on our fascination with those sort of stories and those sort of narratives and it just steadily unpicks it all until we're confronted with our own voyeurism and our own almost like complicity in these sort of acts in that we take pleasure out of trying to find out who killed this pretty homecoming girl and not actually thinking of her as a victim and as a person and as someone who experienced such horrific, awful things. Twin Peaks instead always brings it back to, you know, in the end, who did it isn't important. Solving the crime doesn't matter. The people trying to solve the crime do not matter and maybe in some ways are actually complicit in extending that horror in a way that maybe we definitely don't want to confront as societies because our ideas of justice are so wrapped up in focusing on perpetrators rather than victims. To quote Bobby Briggs, I mean, who, who, who killed Laura Palmer? He screams out at the funeral. We all did. Yep. That's a really good place to finish this particular one. I'm going to save Theory Fish for next week when we're having a roundtable discussion with a, some previous guests on the podcast. Mm. Thank you very much for making it through this mammoth uh, discussion and off oh. uh, quite emotional discussion, I think. Yes, for all of and thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us for this. That was – I wouldn't have wanted to go through the last two episodes with <laughs> yeah. anyone else. You know what? This has been one of the most satisfying pieces of broadcasting I've ever done. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. It was an a real honour to thank talk you. with you both. This was, um, thank like, you so much. This was amazing. Thank it was. You. It was an amazing <laughs> I feel like we, we've now experienced the catharsis that I think <laughs> Twin Peaks was trying to reach its way to all season. Yeah, I needed this. Thank you. Thank yeah. you both. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much for listening. Um, uh, you can find us at TP Season 3 on Twitter or search for T- Twin Peaks Season 3 podcast on Facebook. Thank you very much. And uh, now to an interview with Sabrina Sutherland. First of all, thank you very much for um, taking the time to make this interview happen. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, you do seem unusual for a producer in what I've noticed, that you're very open with fans, you're very um, up for conversations, you're on social media a lot. Um, is this something that you've always done or is this something you think um, the Twin Peaks fans have been really like wanting for a long time, really appreciating this sort of access? 
I think it's probably the latter. I'm not a social media person at all, but uh, the fans are really great, and they deserve to have uh, somebody kind of in their corner to help, you know, resolve certain issues and things like that, anything that I can, that is. Right, okay. Because there are certainly a lot of questions around <laughs> Twin Peaks, and there have been for decades now. Um, has it been... Yeah. How's it been seeing the world react to Part 18, to this very big secret that you've been carrying around for so long? Uh, you know, it really hasn't soaked in yet. I'm still trying to keep everything in. Um, I'm really excited that people are finally seeing it as it is uh, kind of intended being a full feature film. It's an entire thing. So as you went each week, you saw little pieces, but nobody had that overall feeling and now you can go back and actually look at it and see all those threads because there's so many things as you know it's very dense and there are so many things going through and people had all these questions each week but a lot of them were going to be answered eventually so it was very difficult to try and keep that you know a secret not say but hopefully now everybody can see that and um very excited to hear what people say Mm, Whether yeah. it's good or bad, I'm just excited about it because it's people talking about something and it's uh, very close to my heart. Yes, definitely. Did you have any expectations as to how it would be received, knowing that it was going to be such a huge production and it was going to be played out over several months and there'll be a whole spectrum of analyses on the way? No, absolutely not. Never tried to anticipate anything. Um, just let it go, just really like the show and the audience how David wanted everyone to watch it, which, you know, no no uh, teasers, no nothing, just go in, allow the show to wash over you, and that's the same with the reactions. It's just to see how people react. People react differently than maybe I would. I don't know. I, it's just very interesting to watch all that, so nothing was ever anticipated. Right, okay. Could you take us back to the very beginning of your role in The Return? Well, it's interesting. This was done in a very unique way. We really did shoot this. Uh, the entire production was like a feature film and not a television show at all. Mark and David wrote and, you know, delivered a script. And Mark then, being the writer, like on a feature film, the writer's job is kind of done. And he went and he wrote his book. And so he went to go do that while then I started working with David and, uh, you know, getting locations and casting and dealing with the production. Um, David kind of continued uh, doing a little bit more writing and changing things depending on what was happening and different things that needed to happen. So he, he kind of wrote a little bit more, and we were working on that then from uh, the end of 2014. And we shot uh, from September 2015 through around April of 2016. Right, okay. Um, so because producer is a pretty general term. So and I imagine working with Lynch, it, it involves taking on quite a lot of uh, unusual roles. In, that you've, Like from what I understand, talking to the actor Jake Wardle, you, you contacted him because David liked his YouTube video and then he thought about casting him. So in a way... You seem to be like straying into these other areas. So, could you talk a little bit about what it actually was to be a producer? Uh, well, this is yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, again, different. It, it, I helped, like I said. So we started out with locations, 
I went through the script with him, I guess even before that. We'd go through, even if there were things that weren't written yet. He had, uh, David had everything in his head, and I mean everything, from what the characters look like, what the sets look like, what they were going to be wearing. I mean, he had everything in his head. It was all very specific. So my job from the very beginning was to draw all of that out Mm -hmm. and find people for him to work with, and a lot of the people that he's worked with in the past are new people, and make sure the communication between what he wanted and what they needed to do was there. So I was kind of a facilitator, right? Um, but also had to oversee the budget and mm-hmm. kind of oversee with the changes of the script and making sure we wanted everything to be very secret. So I was the policeman. I, I kind of did a lot of roles. I wore a lot of hats, but certainly none as many as David because he was in everything. So I just kind of was there to make sure everything was, I guess, Everything that he wanted happened. That's what my role was. That's simple. I made right, sure okay. whatever he wanted to happen happened. Okay, so for example, the Double R Diner was refurbished, you know, in you know, working with Tweeds, um, and so that was mm-hmm. David going. I want it to look exactly like it did in season one, but then we've also got to, you know, we're going to change the, we're going to change you know, who, who the, the diners are and so this sort of thing. So it was a lot of it involving managing expectations because of course there will be a lot of excitement around you know Twin Peaks coming back, but also everyone's going to want to know. <laughs> they're going to want answers. They're going to want to know about their role in it. And um, and what they can expect from it, from being in it or being associated with it. I I guess so, but I think everybody was on board. Everybody who's worked with David in the past really likes working with him. I don't know really anybody who doesn't like working with him. He's just a very generous person. Whether you're an actor or you're a crew member, he's fun to work with just in general. So um, people are wanting to work with him again, and people who don't know him or who haven't worked with him want to work with him just because he he has this uh, creative eye and vision and you want to be a part of that and you know something good is going to be uh, happening when you're working with him and some some product is going to come out and it's going to be worthwhile whether it's going to be everybody's taste who knows you can never guarantee what somebody's reaction is going to be but you can try and make the vision happen for uh, you know for a person like David and just do the best you can and, and hope for the best. Mm, okay. Um, so what would you say were the biggest challenges um, with, with the production? Because I'm imagining you must have been on set quite a lot and putting out fires, you know, arranging stuff, organizing stuff, facilitating David's vision. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it was interesting because it, it, if you kind of look at it, we did nine feature films in the period of time that usually you have for a mid-range one one feature film. It, it was a challenge all the way from pre-production through production and post-production. It was, it was just trying to keep on a schedule and just keep the train going. Mm, it was okay. it, that was the hardest challenge, I think. Right. Were you involved in the decision decision to go from nine to eighteen episodes? Sorry, parts. I, I, I was involved in in. In what way, I guess? What, well, 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 the negotiations around, what, we, what I understand, and it's still not very clear from an onlooker's perspective, there, there were budgetary questions and questions of uh, creative freedom, I think, around the, what was originally intended to be nine parts of the return. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's more of just, I think, 
the expectations on one side were television, and on David's side uh, was a feature film. So in television, you have okay, it's we're we're talking about so many episodes, and in David's vision. It's like he's not sure. He doesn't know. He he has kind of a feel of time, and when you work with David, uh, you know that sometimes he, his what he looks when he looks at a script page, it's not the usual kind of timing that another a typical television director would would time for a script page. So he his estimation was that it was going to be longer than nine episodes. And mm-hmm. so it was just the question of kind of having changing that perspective from a television show to it being a feature film. And, you know, it was very unique. Like I said, we did this as a feature film. We had a pre-production, and then we had a production, and then we had a post-production. And in television, you're usually, you're usually consecutively but in simultaneously doing different episodes. So you might be prepping one episode, shooting another episode, and you're in post on a third episode all at the same time. Um, were there any actors that you couldn't get that you wanted in the production? Uh, well, I think it's more that we have uh, a wonderful cast. Yes, you and do. That's, you know, that's, that's the big thing. I think the people who are in, in the show are the, pe- the right people who should have been in the show. Um, What were the hardest roles um, to be able to cast, do you think? Well, certainly people who passed away would have been nice to be able to, I guess. Of course, yeah. You know, to have new material, but um, that's probably the the most difficult, was trying to be able to utilize people who aren't with us anymore. Mm -hmm. And how did you wind up um, in the Silver Mustang Casino? You mean my role? Yes, your role. Like, yeah. <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did Joanna Ray um, look at you and go, you're perfect? And, and no, this is kind of a David thing. There are several people from the crew who are in the show. And uh, that was shot at the end of the whole thing. It was uh, the last two days we shot here in the U.S. And uh, by that time, you know, the first AD and I always had a running gag of what roles different people were going to play. And so he ended up playing the the man who threw the bottle uh, at the Audrey's dance thing. Yeah, Scott Cameron. And yeah. It's Scott Cameron, exactly. And then I ended up uh, getting Jackie, the floor attendant. So it was a lot of fun. It was, yeah, nice work. Um I was also wondering in the promotional video uh, we saw we saw like a few you know out of sequence scenes in promotional material and some of those seem to have been cut. Um, do you know if there were a lot of scenes that that were cut? Uh, I don't think there was anything in promotional scenes that were cut. Oh, okay. There was some footage of driving through a cornfield, I think, that uh, people were expecting to see. Uh, footage of Nadine and Jacoby on a date. I think this may not have been a promotion. This may have been um, people watching the production take uh, take place in North Bend. I think actually. Um, yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, none of that happened. There, there, nothing like that was shot. So, uh, and nothing. I don't know about any promos. I mean, there were some promos that were utilizing the original series. So maybe there were shots from there that people mistook for the new series. 
Mm, but okay. there was nothing in the new trailers that were um, that was for the new footage that was not used in the actual show. Okay. And certainly um, those two clips you're talking about, I, I don't recognize what you're, what those are. Okay. Right. Um, because it was seemed very generous when uh, for for the production to be able to allow fans and locals to be, to watch scenes take place in North Bend and around that sort of area. And I know that a lot of my friends involved in the Twin Peaks Festival were hugely appreciative of that opportunity to be able to see the return. Um, so it, I think it might have been photos that they took or th- things that they were talking about. I'm confused with. Oh, it could be. And we we definitely did have the fans around there, and it was great. And the one thing that we were very worried about were all the spoilers. And um, we did ask that people not post things, and for the most part, that's the case. And people held everything until those scenes were either seen or until the end of the show. So we're very grateful for the fans for honoring that request. Mm, well, it does seem like the NDAs that were people involved in the production have been observed almost beyond precedent, I think. Like, to be able to keep to sit on this for 18 months and sometimes longer is, seems incredible. Yeah, I think everybody did an incredible job. Uh, there is very little that I had to do, and I, of course, was the policeman. So I, I, I would make those phone calls and say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. But everybody was very great in um, either honoring it or if they made a mistake, you know, making sure that something was taken down or uh, making sure nothing happened again. Mm, yeah, because a couple of actors did speak out on social media about being unhappy in their role, which I suppose is inevitable in a way that with a production this size and juggling so many people and expectations. Um, did you, overall, were you really happy with, with how everything went? I'm extremely happy, yes, because my job was to get David's vision on the screen, and I think that was accomplished, and so I'm happy about that. And I'm really happy that David... Uh, is happy. Mm. So that's okay. that's what I care about. Okay. So you've been in touch with him quite a lot since Part 18 aired? Uh, well, I, I'm i still working on the show. <laughs> so, right. Yes, so we're still working, or I, I'm still working on it. So, uh, yes, I'm still in touch. Okay. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, you know, there's still things to do. Um, we have uh, free TV versions that have to be delivered and those kinds of things. So there is more than just what was aired. There are other things that have to be, you know, put together. Mm, Okay. Because I guess the return still hasn't finished in the way that we've still got a Blu-ray and DVD release to come at some point, I imagine. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I mean, there certainly is going to be that. When does does this wrap up for you, your journey? Uh, Hopefully pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now that it's all aired, hopefully pretty soon. It's um it's been quite a ride. I've been working on this since I think 2012. Right. So okay. it's been a while. Oh. Um and of course there's a lot of people talking about season 4. And if there, if there was a season 4 to take place, how how would it play out? Would it be a conversation where where Lynch would would give you a call and say, "Sabrina, get, we're getting back on board." Is that how it would I have yeah. no idea. I have no idea, and I don't even want to speculate. We just <laughs> saw the show on Sunday, the last one, and I still want to absorb that for a while. Mm. So yeah, I have I think... no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. I'm really, really grateful again for you being able to take the, the time to speak. Oh, no, thank you so much. It's been my honor. <laughs>